welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning, or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Thank you very much for the welcome, for the opportunity to be here, and for the privilege of sharing a reflection on Scripture with you this morning. Um, Your pastor wrote to me, two, three months ago and told me that he was going on sabbatical and he'd been reading a couple of books of mine and he asked me if I'd come and share some of the insights that are expressed in in those books. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to talk about my books. I hate talking about my own writing. But I'm going to focus on a passage which has played a really important role in my own struggles over the past. And it's a book which has been preached on here for the last several weeks, maybe several months, the book of Revelation. Um, And I, I want to stick with the text that I thought I must try to reflect on this morning and perhaps it will just underline and re-emphasize what has been said about the book of Revelation over the past weeks. So I'm using uh, as as the basis for this reflection the statement at the beginning of chapter four of the book of Revelation. And I'll just read the first few verses at the start of this chapter. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in the speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And I want to ask the question, what is this door that stands open in heaven and what does it mean to pass through that door? door is both an exit and an entrance. So in passing through this door, which he sees standing open in heaven, John is exiting something, some context, and entering in to a different world and a different context. And I'm going to just try to reflect this morning and what that means for us. We hear the same invitation, the same, perhaps better to say, instruction 
to pass through the door that stands open between earth and heaven. A couple of titles of things that I've read are Mission After Christendom, and then more recently, Liberating the Gospel. And I think those are the books that your pastor has been reading. And the titles indicate what has been my struggle. It's a struggle to be faithful to the gospel in a secular culture and to find ways of expressing and living the gospel in a manner that would connect with the reality of the social and the cultural world that we see all around us and of which we are inevitably a part. And in that struggle, this book with the door standing open in heaven has, at least for me, played an enormous part. Chapter 4, this text that we've just read, is in many ways the key turning point of the book as a whole. It's a kind of hinge point at which John, the author, passes from his present reality to perceive the existence of another reality that absolutely transforms everything. So we have to ask the question, what is his present reality? And how is that present reality, the world in which he lives, in which he confesses the name of Jesus Christ crucified, how is that reality impacted by passing through the door that leads him into the very throne room of God. One of the things I do um, in the morning with my first cup of tea, what a blessing that first cup of tea is, um, is I scan through uh, BBC News on the web and I practically always find myself looking at that feature on BBC News, uh, the front pages of all the newspapers. It's a very morbid habit. Um, from the Guardian at one end to the sun and the star at the other end. And at the end of looking at all those front pages, time after time, I'm left feeling what a world this is and how enormous are the challenges and the difficulties, especially for those of us who confess that it's the crucified Jesus who is the Lord of all things, of time and space and history and of this broken, tragic and in many ways deeply sinful world. Well, I think... John's context was something like that. So what does he mean when he says after this? After what? 
What is it? What's, the, what's his historical reality? What's he grappling with in the, at the end of the first century <clears throat> in the context of a Roman Empire that is becoming ever more powerful, ever more dominant, and imposing not just a political system on the whole of the realm that it controls, but also a religious worldview in which Caesar, the triumphant Caesar, is the Lord of the whole earth. In those first three chapters, we are given a fairly detailed description of John's personal context. And as you know, he's generally believed to be in prison. He's on the island of Patmos for the sake of the gospel. The Romans have this practice that um, they were very, very suspicious of people who might be described as mystical. So prophets, poets, um, people who might claim to anticipate some kind of different reality from that which was in, in, in fact the case in the ancient world, those people were treated as potentially dangerous. <clears throat> and so we know that any number of such people with prophetic gifts were arrested and exiled on small islands across the Mediterranean. And John appears to be one of those people. So he's on the island of Patmos for the sake of Jesus Christ and the gospel. In other words, the gospel that John has been preaching is seen as a threat to the reality of the world in which he lives. There is something about this proclamation of the crucified and risen Jesus that deeply challenges existing reality within the Roman Empire. He's in a position of isolation, of loneliness, and faces a situation in terms of the churches that he knows and loves, which is deeply depressing. So it's a bleak picture. Revelation chapters one to three describes a very, very tough situation for faith, for living out faith, for confessing and living the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then there's also the context of Roman Asia, what is happening in his world at this time. And it's the fact that the, what we call the cult of emperor worship, the exaltation of the Roman Caesar to the status of being a divine being. So the political power becomes ultimate and people are expected to acknowledge that and to honor the ruler as a divine being. And John sees this cult spreading 
And he lives at a time when there is the memory of the suffering of Christians in Rome, the great fire of Rome in the reign of Nero, and Nero's brutality and cruelty toward those who confess Christ within the city of Rome, making them the scapegoats for his own evil actions. This is John's world. This is the world in which he, which he struggles to confess the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then on top of all of that, there is the condition of the churches. And you know these letters to the seven churches and, and you will be familiar with the fact that the overall picture is extremely grim in respect of these churches, culminating in the church at Laodicea, which has been engaged in a process of compromise that will enable it to confess Jesus while at the same time living without any difficulty in the context of this empire that is full of blasphemies. And so just before this door opens in heaven, we have the words of Christ to the church at Laodicea, rebuking them that they say, I am rich and have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That's the context. That's the world from which he makes an exit when he passes through this door. There's a very fine study of the book of Revelation by an American scholar called Adela Collins. And she says of this book that it's written to resolve the tension between what was promised and the actual situation. In other words, the tension that has built up between what the gospel seemed to promise, that in Christ, the new age had come. In Christ, this world was to be transformed. It's the promise of the prophets, of what in the Hebrew Bible is called the, the coming of shalom, the putting to rights of all that is wrong. And in Jesus Christ, the announcement is made that that kingdom is here, it's present. And by the time John is writing at the end of the first century, there are inevitably questions that we find elsewhere at this point in Christian history. In the letter of Peter, in the letter of James, why is it that with the immensity of the promise of the gospel, we still find ourselves in this kind of situation? And so there's a tension and Colin says, the whole purpose of the book of Revelation is to deal with that tension and provide answers 
to the kind of questions that arise when Christians find themselves in this kind of situation. And I think that mirrors almost exactly the position in which many Christians in the Western world find themselves at the present time. I've just discovered a book by a French philosopher called Chantal Delsol, and the title of the book is Icarus Has Fallen. She's using the myth of Icarus, as you will remember, imagine that he could transcend the earth, he could transcend human limitations. So he makes wings out of wax and then flies too close to the sun and falls back down again and is killed. And Del Sol says, that, that's the myth for our times. Scholars have often identified different myths, Greek myths that seem to speak to our situation. And she says, when, when you look at what has happened in a postmodern world, that, that, that's precisely our experience, that we thought we could transcend human reality in our own power and strength. And not just as individuals, but as a culture, we have fallen out of that fantasy into a time of grave crisis. Here's what she says. Because we have just emerged from pointless epochs like the stylish revolt of the late 60s, followed by years of glitz and money, the spiritual tone of our society is one of idle recreation. It's a very striking statement and it really struck home to me when I read it. The spiritual tone of our society is one of idle recreation. That's the context. Let's go through the door. What do we discover on the other side of the door? What happens beyond that door as the visions unfold across many chapters in the rest of the book of Revelation is an entirely different perspective. We're obviously not going into this in detail this morning, but basically and fundamentally what John sees is the throne of God. And seated on that throne is not the Roman Caesar, but the lamb that was slain, the crucified Christ, raised to glory and sharing the throne of heaven. So what the message of Revelation is as it unfolds is that despite all that seems to be reality in our day-to-day -day experience, the ultimate reality is that the Christ who died for our redemption is the true Lord and Savior of history and he 
will have his redemptive purpose fulfilled. And once you're on the other side of that door, everything changes. You see the whole world and everything in it in a different light. Now, Caesar is stripped of his glory. And Revelation, as you know, is is full of symbolism, some of it really disturbing, some of it very difficult to comprehend. But the Roman Empire becomes a ravenous beast emerging from the sea. The Roman legions, which were celebrated as the means of a universal peace, are seen for what they are the agents of totalitarianism, taking away freedom to think, to have an alternative way of understanding life and dominating the world that the empire controlled. And the destiny of that empire that boasted that it was eternal that after Rome there could be no further development, the destiny of the empire is destruction. The way the world is organized by the imperial power is not sustainable. And I think Revelation chapter 18 is one of the most sobering passages in the whole of the Bible. The destruction of the new Babylon which was the Roman Empire. But above all, what John sees on the other side of that door is the slain lamb and the summons and the call and the invitation to make him the Lord of life and then to live out that discipleship within the empire having gone through the door, as it were, to go back again with a transformed understanding and a new commitment to live together the way of Jesus Christ. Karl Barth, great theologian of the last century, once said this, To fold hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. To fold hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. Brothers and sisters, what this means is that what we do when we come together to worship has enormous potential. This is not just a withdrawal from day-to-day reality. It's, It's going through the door. It's the opportunity to pass through that door that changes everything, gives us a new understanding of ultimate reality and then strengthens us, however difficult it may be, and it may be very difficult. It may cost us our careers. It may cost us our lives. 
I've been doing a lot of reading recently in the early church fathers in the first 300 years. And after John's time, when you move into the second century, you, you've soon come on the age of the martyrs. And when you read those stories of humble, believing people who suffered unspeakable acts of barbarity and cruelty in the Roman arenas and yet died confessing that Jesus was their true Lord. And we live in a world which is so broken in a culture that in many ways seems increasingly to be like the culture in which John himself existed. And that must mean that the challenge to discipleship is the challenge to give everything for the sake of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings me finally just to a very brief comment. What is the outcome for John? Well, his, his whole understanding is transformed. He's given, he's given a, a new perspective, a new angle with which to view reality. Um, and, and of course, one of, the, one of the things that's really important about this book is its focus on the imagination. The Roman world was full of symbolism. Every street in every city had statues, um, inscriptions, monuments that all declared the glory of the Roman Empire. So it was an empire that was very rich in propaganda, proclaiming its own ultimate victory. And what Revelation does for us as believers, if we allow it to do so, is transform our imaginations. A number of commentaries on this book have, have seen the importance of this. That it's, it's in one sense, it's not so much the intellect, although the intellect is enormously important, but it, it's, it's the imaginative world that John gives to believers who are under pressure a new set of symbols and so a new imagination. They can imagine a different kind of world. That's a great gift for us as Christians. That's why it's such a great thing to be a disciple of Jesus. We have the sources in the gospel to imagine a world different from the one that I see every morning on the front pages of those newspapers. So his faith and his hope is transformed. I, um, I'm really sorry to do this, but I'm gonna to refer to another book. Um, I, I, wrote, I, I spend a lot of time uh, in International Christian College wrestling with the challenge of urbanization. And I finished um, that task and produced from all the work that I'd done on that subject a book, Seeking a City with Foundations. 
And when I reached the last chapter of this book, I could not work out how to finish it. I had, I had half a dozen attempts at writing the last chapter. I have a very good American friend and colleague who's very honest, but also full of love, and that's the kind of friends you need. And I frequently asked him to read my stuff and comment on it. And I remember showing him what I thought was at last the, the right way to finish this book. And he came back with a message that basically said, David, this is just not good enough. Um, and I, so I almost gave up and thought, I just cannot complete this project. And then I was reading a, 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 a sociological journal and I came across this statement by a guy talking about how we make our cities habitable, how we make them cities of joy and community. And he said, we focused a lot on engineers, that we need engineers to produce uh, cities that work. And by the way, this is not a negative comment on engineering. Um, for anyone who's hoping to be a, a civil engineer. Um, but he said this, in addition to engineers, we need imagineers. It's an invented word. But I, 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 had, I had the end of my chapter. I knew now what I needed to say. That we, we need a, a way of imagining a different reality, and that is what the book of Revelation gives us. That is what it means to pass through the door that is open in heaven. So let's keep on doing it. Let's do it in our personal lives. Let's do it as we meet together for worship. Let's go through that door again and again and allow our imaginations our intellect, our behavior, our lives to be transformed by passing through the door that is open in heaven. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the enormous privilege of worshiping together this morning. Thank you that we are such a privileged people. We come um, not because we want to escape reality, but because we want to catch the glimpse of your glory which enables us to return to the reality of our culture and live out our lives in that context in faithfulness and obedience to the Lamb of God crucified and risen for the salvation of the world. Hear us, Lord, and sustain us as we strive to be your faithful disciples. In the name of Jesus, amen.